Hello and welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman, Saturday Down South. On this episode, what we're going to do is talk about the end of the Mike White era. Um, Mike leaves Florida for the University of Georgia on Selection Sunday, only three days after Florida's lost Texas A&M in the SEC tournament, a heartbreaking loss that eliminated Florida from NCAA tournament contention. Um, the Gators did not get a bid. They are going to play in the NIT tonight as I record this Wednesday morning against Iona. We will preview that game. If all you really care about is the Iona preview, fast forward to 55 minutes into the podcast because that's kind of when we start talking about it. Um, the first 55 minutes of the show, we break down Mike's decision to leave, why it's best for both parties. Uh, we kind of give a bird's eye view of, of Mike White's tenure, what went wrong, uh, what we'll remember that is positive, and, you know, just kind of talk about uh, ultimately seven years where Mike won a bunch of games but didn't really compete for championships and, and ultimately uh, elects to move on. Um, so mutual parting of ways. And now Florida will be looking for a coach. We do not get into coaching candidates on this show. Uh, we will, at a later date, get into coaching candidates. I promise you that. Um, that will be in the next pod. So thank you all for listening to Florida Basketball Hour, and we look forward to a new head coach with you. Hello and welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman, Saturday Down South, joined by Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com. Eric, the Mike White era is over. Mike White um, and the Gators lose to Texas A&M in a heartbreaking game at the SEC tournament that we don't really need to discuss because there's way too much other stuff to get into. Um, but after Florida loses, all but sealing their NIT fate, we will talk about Iona. Um, Mike White essentially waits like three days and then takes the Georgia job, um, which I don't think any of us saw the destination coming, but certainly those y'all that have listened to Florida basketball hour, you know, we both of us definitely talked about the possibility that white would leave on his own terms. And he does. Yeah. I certainly didn't hear the, the Georgia name tossed around. Um, I'm yet to find someone who did. So like on one hand, there was the report that was like, Hey, you know, Florida um, or Georgia reaches out to Florida to ask at, you know, at noon, if they can talk to Mike white and like, you know, the deal's done five hours later, whatever there, there, you know, that story was out there. Um, I found it a little tough to believe. I thought it was pretty funny. Uh, Nick Delatore from on three pointed out that um, he was sitting next to Scott Strickland all around the, the noon hour at baseball. Uh, when it was uh, kind of reported that they reached out to Strickland asking for permission to talk to White. So uh, Nick suggesting that hmm, the timeline's a little fishy on, on the, the exact specifics, but, you know, for for whatever that's worth. But um, but again, that's kind of the, the story that's out there is that they uh, they asked him and he didn't have to think for, for too long. Um, whatever it was, I mean, we kind of had heard that he was kicking around a couple of programs. Um, we did not hear Georgia and, uh, it, it really does make, um, you know, it makes a whole lot of sense for, for white to go there 
um, when they offered. I, I guess I'm just a little surprised that Georgia put out the offer. Um, and again, I was not expecting someone to pay the Gators $1.25 million to take White away from the Gators. So um, maybe that gives them a little bit of a head start here with the coaching search or, uh, at, you know, improving the assistant uh, coaching pool or, you know, giving a refresh to the practice facility, something like that. But hey, I think for the Gators, who would have had to have thought long and hard about spending $8 million plus on a buyout, um, instead getting $1.25 million out of the equation uh, to have White move on. Um, I guess it worked out uh, pretty well. Yeah, I mean, Florida went from $8.75 million buyout to getting paid $1.25 million for Mike White uh, to depart. So from a financial standpoint, I know one of the things we talked about was if White leaves – there would be some sort of circumstance where everybody kind of came out feeling like they could get a fresh start. And this really is that for Florida. I mean, they get $1.25 million. They also, um, Mike White gets to leave this kind of orbit of toxicity that had uh, enveloped some of his <clears throat> family and just the negativity uh, there were reports by Chris Harry, uh, Pat Dooley, that the last couple of years it had really gotten to Mike um, and his family, which is obviously terribly unfortunate. Um, but Mike gets a good fresh start now at Georgia, and Florida is um, looking for a new head coach. Uh, we're going to do like a I, – I want to take a look back at the white era before we get into the new head coach things. I also want to let Tracy into the stream here since I told her she could co-host tonight. Um, so Tracy, I know this is tough for you because, you know, obviously lots of love for Mike White. So I'm in um, mourning <laughs> and I follow, yeah. um, I follow Georgia basketball. So I'm getting dragged left and right. <laughs> Yeah, but I want to make it clear. I, I want to make something very clear. I am not a Georgia fan. I hate Georgia more than anything in this world, but I like to see him succeed to a certain point. So that's all. <laughs> yeah. Well, Tracy, I think all of us, um, certainly, you know, most skaters, I would hope would want Mike White to succeed. He certainly led the Florida program with, with class and integrity. Um, I don't think anybody has any questions about that. And he did so at a time when the FBI was swirling multiple uh, SEC programs. So, you know, there there is a lot to be said for being a high-character person. But Tracy um, or Neil, um, I'm curious, what do you think the uh, – what do you think the uh, – reception will be from the Gator fans when uh, the first time Mike White and the Georgia Bulldogs come into Gainesville. What are you, what are you kind of expecting? Um, I mean, the games that I, I've been to most all of them this year and everyone around me, I don't ever share like the anti Mike White rhetoric at the games. It's mostly, if not all on social media. Um, I mean, there's people there that are, upset when we lose a game because who isn't as a fan but i don't really notice like hostility in the stands so i don't know i mean it's kind of like when Muschamp came with south carolina that time i mean you know i don't think like you said he left as a high integrity 
individual. It's not like a Will Wade coming in. So I don't know. I mean, it'll be interesting. I would hope people would just kind of keep it somewhat classy, but I guess we'll see. I'll be at that game for sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say that Will Wade is not going to, and we just muted you, Tracy, so that we could get rid of the feedback. But the um, I would say Will Wade won't be going into any college gyms for a very long time. Um, and that's a good thing. We could get into that some tonight too, but I kind of bird's eye view of, of the Mike white to Georgia move before we take bird's eye view of the, the Mike white era. What I'll say about Mike white to Georgia is it's like Mark Fox level of class and integrity with like more wins. Um, you know, so it's kind of that type of hire. They don't have to worry about a coach throwing players under the bus at press conferences. Um, just a lot of the nonsense that they were dealing with, with Crean as if going six and 26 in a power six league wasn't bad enough, which is really hard to do, by the way, if you're a power six basketball team, like it's very hard to be that terrible. Um, and they were. So Georgia hasn't won an NCAA tournament game since the 2000s um you know that it's been over a decade uh 2009 or 2008 i believe is the last time they won a game in the ncaa tournament uh so we're we're getting on 13 14 years mike white went to four ncaa tournaments at florida uh and then was on the wrong side of the bubble twice obviously on the right side of it once but he's going to get georgia to the ncaa tournament i don't think there's any question in my mind that that will happen there um, for him. One thing I wonder is, uh, you know, what does he do to kind of look back at the Florida era? And this probably gets to the Florida section and, and say, Hey man, I really could have done this better. Cause I think there are a couple of things, but it's a perfect job for Mike. Cause they wanted to get back to high character after Tom Crean, like I said, just blasting players at press conferences and whatnot. Um, you know, the stuff he said about, uh, Keldon Johnson, the Auburn transfer, Keldon, Katie Johnson, the transfer to Auburn was just despicable. I mean, saying like, you know, oh, we're so happy Katie transferred because he doesn't have the character to be a bulldog and stuff. Uh, just ridiculous stuff to say when you're not winning any games or if you are winning games. Uh, so Kareen out, high character Mike in, not really high expectations at Georgia because they've been terrible for over a decade. Um, but Georgia has a good fan base in every sport. And I imagine that they'll be excited to have a coach that has, you know, won more games in the sec than anybody, but John Calipari and Rick Barnes in the last seven years. Um, so your thoughts on just kind of the fit, Eric. I, I mean, I, I've got to say, like, if I was a Georgia basketball fan, I wouldn't be super blessed about this hire just because it kind of, to me, suggests that they're willing to kind of like if I'm a Georgia basketball fan, I'm probably trying to look at the like Alabama and Auburn approach to how quickly they've kind of flipped basketball by getting a good right. mind and putting resources behind it. Whereas this is a hire that's just like, hey, we don't want to we don't want to have any NCAA problems and we just want to like, you know, be happy to get to the tournament, you know, every once in a while or, you know, potentially consistently. Again, we'll see, because like you mentioned, it would be it's a big turnaround to get them to the point where they're, you know, consistently getting to the NCAA tournament. So 
but at the same time, like, I think, I think Georgia offered exactly what Mike White wants. Like, I think this job is a, a perfect job for Mike White, because I think he would like to, for there not to be too much expectation and not for there to be too much noise if they drop a bad game in um you know november or, or december and uh obviously i don't think yeah I, i'm still waiting to find some of these contract numbers uh, for for white at georgia i don't know if any anyone's seen those neil if you have but um i don't know what money is but i'm sure that's not going to be a problem so i mean hey be well resourced um, with low expectations. Um, I, I think that they're offering exactly what Mike White wants as much as we kind of thought, oh, it might be, um, you know, it might be Ole Miss, it might be Butler, it might be NC State. Uh, you look at all the jobs we had kind of heard. Um, while in a vacuum, Georgia is not the best of those jobs. I think it might be the, the, the best in the eyes of Mike White for what he was looking for. Tracy? You, yes. You, what? <laughs> all right. I mean, what do you, what do you think? Are you, I mean, you probably from the human side of things are just happy that Mike doesn't have to deal with uh, the toxic the portion of the family. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. I mean, I don't follow Georgia basketball. I mean, I'm not like an X's the nose. Like you said, I come from like a human standpoint and um, I mean, if he stayed, I obviously I think like his seat would have been flaming hot. Right. So from, I think he made the right choice um, buying himself at least what do you think two to three years is like acceptable for a rebuild. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think his mental health was deteriorating because who's what, who wouldn't be. Um, so I don't blame him for leaving. It just hurts. I, I really wanted him to be the guy here. I really, I really did. I think he's a great guy and I think the players love him and uh, it just kind of sucks. It's like bittersweet in a sense. So it's just kind of scary because this fan base is just so toxic that whoever comes in here, it's like, you know, I know it comes with the territory and all that, but I mean, I don't know. To me, it just seemed ridiculously out of control when it came to Mike White, undeservingly so. Yeah, I think when you um, follow like a generationally good head coach in any sport, it's difficult. Um and so I think that that was always going to track Mike White, uh, no matter what. Now, that doesn't mean, and you heard on the show this, this year, I know Tracy listens, um, <clears throat> you know, I mean, there, are, there were plenty of criticisms. Mike had plenty of flaws uh, as, a, as a basketball coach, particularly some of the stuff that they did uh, schematically, Eric. And I think really at the end of the day, one of the things I wrote at Saturday Down South was I think my biggest crime was that his floor and his ceiling were very close together. Um, you know, and I think in Florida, when you want to compete for championships, at some point people were going to be tired of going 21 and 12, 19 and 12, 20 and 11, that kind of stuff. Now they want to, they want to compete for titles and they have a right to, to do that. They, you know, Florida has one, more SEC championships in the sport than anybody but um, Kentucky since 1990. So we're talking about over three decades. It's not like this is a flash in the pan. That's uh, like most of my lifetime that they've been good at basketball uh, and I'm not particularly young. So um, yeah, I mean, Eric, kind of your thoughts on, on that, you know, obviously there's some schematic flaws and I mean, you, you kind of agree with that assessment. Like that's part of the reason that, 
Florida wanted a fresh start too. Well, it just shows that like context matters because again, like in, in 50 years, looking back at the history books, there's going to be someone who's like, Hey, you know what? That like Mike white, who kind of got to the tournament consistently. It's like, Oh, it's a little surprising that, um, there was kind of a mutual parting of ways, but like, it's just one of those things why like context does matter. Like the lot, the way that some of these losses occurred are going, is going to be worse than, than people looking back at the box score. Um, even some of the wins are going to look a little bit emptier with some of the context. So it, it also just shows why, um, even with like, you know, the next head coach, I do think to an extent, I think you've got to get a style of play that is going to bring in the casual fan. Because again, the casual fan was just lost in kind of the rhythm that seasons under Mike White had, where there was just never a stretch or never, never a style of play or an identity that, that people could really attach to. And, um, you know, I went on stadium and Gale on, on Monday night and, I kind of made a comment regarding the fact that like, you know, the, the next hire probably has to get like the Dan Thompson's and the silks of the world to care be, and, and, you know, using them as, as examples of, um, you know, casual fans. And they kind of pointed out to me, they're like, Hey, we don't need like, you know, a bunch, you, we don't need lob city or a bunch of guys, you know, shooting a hundred threes a game. He's like, we could get behind, you know, winning games 55 to 54. If that was like the clear identity that they were going for. So I kind of opened my eyes to, again, this is just example of a couple of guys, you know, being my kind of uh, barometer for what the casual fan might want. Um, but uh, again, just like an example that like, like the, what, a lot, what I think some of the casual fans or a lot of the casual fans want is an identity to get behind. And, and you have seen that with some of these coaches and we'll probably talk about one at some point um, that have some of these styles of play that are like not sexy or not run and gun, um, but they win basketball games and their fans behind them um, have really come to support. They really take pride in the style of play because people can take pride in an identity. And that's one of the things where, where Florida just really lacked one. I mean, still in year seven, searching for an offense that, that would work um, or trying to be able to like, you know, struggling to recruit to an offense because we're not really sure what the offensive identity is. And um, to the point where it's like, okay, for a while it was going to be defense is the identity. And there's multiple seasons in, in a row that the Gators are not good defensively. And I guess we could argue to what extent um, would you, if you would say the Gators are not good defensively this year or bad defensively this year, um, you could kind of listen to an argument for, for both. Um, but uh, that's kind of that, that. That's just something that I, that I think is just important with with the context, and um, I do think a lot of that um, for me does come down to X's and O's. Um, I'd, I'd have to say that is the weakest part of Mike White's coaching. Um, very high on on Mike White's ability to coach are like you know what above everything else it's his ability to have players play hard for him. The players just love him. They play really, really hard for him. Never a question. Um, after that, it's probably the ability to go out and get the, the highly rated recruit. Um, but the things that I think, you know, struggled was like identifying, you know, talent, um, the kind of recruits that he needed. Um, and also, you know, in-game adjustments um, coming in with a game plan that work and, and maybe even, maybe even over, overarching everything else is just like knowing how you win at the high major level because he came in full court pressing and playing dribble drive that was never going to work and he just kind of kept cycling through styles of basketball that have not been really proven to work at the high major level and to me it just showed someone that's just not totally sure um how how the game is played at the highest level right now 
And uh, especially if, if the Gators go the direction of a mid-major coach, they need to make sure that that guy understands how to win at the highest level and the styles of basketball that are working at the highest level of the sport. Uh, because I do think that was something that was lacking under, uh, under the Mike White regime. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. And I want to let Tracy hop in one more time here before we get into the nitty gritty of looking back at, at the white era, but, uh, and Tracy, like, thank you for, um, for hopping on for, for a little bit. Uh, yeah, thanks for inviting me. No, of course. Um, I mean, you're, you, you know, you, you're somebody that was sitting courtside to the, <laughs> to, to the bitter end. And I think when you look at the, at the white era, at the last white team, I mean, this team, certainly seemed to play very hard. They seemed to like each other. Uh, they, they had a lot of heart, you know, their ability. I think Eric tweeted during the Texas A&M game, like their ability to make huge comebacks is kind of ridiculous given what their flaws were, um, you know, but then they'd have these games where we'd all kind of be confused uh, as to like what was happening and what was wrong. Well, even when they played Georgia, what was it, a couple of years ago, I was at that game in Gainesville. They were down, what, 20-something at the half and came back and won. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been exciting when when <laughs> when we win. Even, like, I was at the Auburn game. We won by, what was it, one? So, you know, I don't know. I just – I am going to take the, I guess, Mike White era and just, like, remember the good times. I mean, you know, it just didn't work out. I think Pat Dooley wrote the article yesterday. Just whoever was going to follow Billy Donovan – was going to be in trouble, you know? So it, it's hard. Like, I just feel like the next guy, you know, it's not going to be as big of a pressure because you're following a guy who was like, you know, <laughs> chased out of here. So I don't know. I don't know where the future is. I mean, I hopefully they make a hire pretty soon. Um, what do you guys think about like the incoming class? Is it going to fall apart? Do you think we're going to keep some? What do you think? Uh, that's a good question. I think, um, I think the Florida guys, you're probably in pretty decent shape with Malik Renau and Denzel Aberdeen. Um, didn't seem too bothered by anything so far. Um, Jalen Reed is certainly the one I would worry about um, because that was largely a commitment to Eric Pastrana and Mike White. Um, and, you know, he has ties to Ole Miss in particular. Uh, and then – was recruited fairly hard by UCLA. So I uh, could always stay out in California. Um, I don't know. He might be one guy that, that's released from his, uh, his letter of intent, Tracy. It's a good question, though. I don't intend to. Just want to make that clear. But, like, when that guy got fired, Crean, does everyone leave or does Mike White keep some of those assistants and things like that, like for their incoming recruiting class? Like how does that usually work with a coaching Well, team? I don't think they're going to – that's a good question too. I don't think they'll keep any assistants um, at, at Georgia. Um, I do think Mike will obviously try to keep their best player. So I think Okendo um, is a guy that Mike White probably already talked to, um, knowing Mike. So – that's probably where that starts, but, but I, I definitely appreciate, uh, and I know Eric appreciates uh, you listening and, and hopping on tonight. Yeah. Thank you for including me. I appreciate you guys keeping it uh, real and not, you know, bullying and going that down that bad Avenue bashing. So you guys keep it real. So we all enjoy uh, listening. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. You're Thanks welcome. Tracy.
Bye. So, you know, Eric, I think when we look back at the white era, you, I mean, you already touched on a couple of those things that I think are super uh, interesting and important. But one thing I would say um, in terms of uh, the last four years, really, really since the departure of Chris Chioza, we've had new offense every season. And it's almost as if there is no, the only identity is pragmatism, right? They just keep trying different things. Um, and then defensively, you know, he really was attached to the hip until this year to hedging every ball screen. Um, and they played a high hedge. They sometimes would play a little bit of a low hedge, but it was always a hedge. They didn't adopt their pick and roll coverage. Um, you know, they did play a little bit of press. They played a little bit of 13 zone, uh, but not as much as, you know, he had kind of promised when he came over from Louisiana Tech. Maybe that was one example of where he did figure out that he couldn't do it um, all the time in the SEC, that he wasn't Louisville or early era Billy Donovan. Um, Rick Pitino, Louisville. Rick Pitino, Iona. Uh, he couldn't couldn't press all the time. But, um, you know, I do. I mean, I kind of do think that, Florida was bad defensively this year, which hurt things um, given what they did in the transfer portal to try to negate that and it just not working. Um, and then, you know, but at the end of the day, it was kind of the lack of an identity that that became somewhat of the downfall of, of the white era for me. Um, I want to give my theory on the defense um, in a second. Um, first, just kind of, you know, commenting on the offense. And I know I've said it on the podcast before, but, you know, pragmatic, but I just never felt like White was ever able to fully realize, you know, anything offensively. Like, again, like they, they played dribble drive at, at, at Louisiana Tech and brought it over, but it was just very simple dribble drive. Like, again, it was like the first couple pages of like the dribble drive playbook. If you like were to buy one off, you know, a PDF of it on one of the, you know, coaching resources and same thing with the Princeton and same thing with the five out this year, it just always felt like it's like, and it was one of those things where we come to the podcast and you and me were like, okay, okay, here we go. Like seeing this Princeton, like, all right, like what's coming next. And then you're like, you know, a month later and it's still what they were running, you know, four months before. And same as the, you know, the five out, they go in their first MTE. You and me are like, oh, right on. Like, okay, we're, we're cooking here. They're doing the five out thing. And then just, nothing like they never got beyond this, the same simple actions. And I just felt like, again, it was pragmatic enough to change when something wasn't working, but they're just, I don't know, like, was there not the ability to, to see it through? Um, was there ever an understanding of these offenses? Like, I, I, I don't feel like there was because we just never saw anything, but like the most simple form of all these things. And you even want to talk like this flat hedging ball screen. It's like, if you're going to do that, you've got a double tag on the roll. Like you've got it. You, you know, if you're going to ice, you got to triple switch the ice. And, yeah. and again, I'm not trying to just like throw out nerdy coaching things, but like, just as an example of like, what's again, what's working in the, the modern kind of basketball is like, every strategy that, that the Gators kind of used, it, it was never fully realized or it was never the full, like, like Florida just like, I just felt like their schemes lacked sophistication. And again, it's like, yeah, okay. You've got to ice. You've got to be like all the teams that like, like you see in the NBA right now, like 
it was like like Tom Thibodeau was icing ball screens in like the Bush administration. And now it's already like it's cut like ball screens came to the NBA and everyone was doing it. And now it's already gone. Like it's already come and passed before the Gators started doing it. And now the only teams that can nice triple switch out of it. And like, so again, you're just seeing like as much as it's pragmatic, it's like there's a reason that teams don't normally ice ball screens anymore because teams figured out how to beat it six or seven years ago. So again, just that's it's Mike White is gone now. So there's, there's nothing to be done about that, but just, uh, just something that's going to kind of stick with me when I think about, you know, Mike White's coaching. And if someone from Georgia was to ask me kind of my takeaway, that was a little bit of it, but um, I, I, I want to give my theory on the lack of defensive identity and why the Gators have struggled for three years on defense. But first I'm, I'm genuinely interested, Neil. Um, I forget the numbers. I have to pull them up, but um, Florida finished the season um, in Ken Palm, 37th on offense and 77th on defense. Two questions. One, do you really think Florida was a better offensive than defensive team this year? And also, do you really think they were the 37th best offense this year? Um, I think they might have been. I think they were a better offensive team than a defensive team. I, I really do believe that. And I and I know I came on the podcast saying a bunch of times that they needed to lean into their defense and stuff. And, you know, I mean, when they put in the house lane on the floor, it did get better. Um, but every time he came off the floor, it was like they were sieve. I mean, they hemorrhaged points. Just look at the Texas A&M game. I mean, he left with cramps. Um, for the listeners that don't know, and I was given permission to share this, so – Niles Lane played the SEC tournament game with uh, tonsillitis and had a fever uh, and played um, and played the best game of his career. Uh, You know, it was like the Jordan game for him Um, and uh, cramped up because he just lacked fluids when you're sick, you know, and so uh, they couldn't get his cramp out. So that's why he didn't play in overtime. It wasn't like Mike White DNP'd him. They wanted him on the floor. Duke was working him. Um, but case in point, I mean, Florida hemorrhaged points in the overtime period after basically shutting A&M down the last five minutes of the game with Lane on the floor. Um, and Florida kept fouling over and over. So uh, Florida's foul discipline was terrible, Eric, um, late in the season on really all season against anyone that could straight line drive. It seemed like people just lived at the free throw line against the Gators. How many did Ole Miss shoot in their decimation of Florida and Oxford, right? Um, So Florida couldn't defend straight line drives. And when it's easy for people to get to the rim, uh, it's easier to score, particularly when you can't rebound. So I thought those two things um, were really problematic for Florida. They gave up too many second chance possessions which led to too many second chance points. Um, And then they couldn't defend straight line drives. And then as a result, it's that old theory, Eric, about how like if one thing is bad and you, you know, the the leaky boat, uh, you you, you plug one leak and another one happens. So Florida, as a result of their inability to defend straight line drives, starts helping. Um, They start bringing ball side help on drivers Uh, They're doing all sorts of things to try to help and protect the rim. Well, that starts leaving shooters open. Um, And late in the season, Florida went from, uh, and I actually wrote this down, Eric. So the Gators um, on January 30th were 13th in the country 
in three-point defense. They finished the year 125th. So the adjustment they made cost them a 100-spot fall in three-point defense. 125th isn't terrible, um, but, I mean, suddenly teams were burying the triple against them late in SEC play, right? So that's kind of a long answer as to why I thought they were just so flawed defensively. And so almost by default, I think they were better on offense. Um, But I also think they were a little bit better on offense because Colin Castleton is a really good low post scorer um, for the collegiate game. And Florida did shoot the ball a little better in February. Um, And so because they were able to shoot the ball a little bit better, their efficiency numbers improved. I, like I honestly can't decide whether I think Florida was a better defensive or offensive team this year. Like I see those numbers and it should be apparent, but like, like on one hand, I think that they were worse defensively than they were offensively. But on the other hand, I thought there was a better chance that they would win a game with their defense um, than them winning a game with their offense because there was times that like, you know, their effort was so high that like I could see them like stealing a game with their defense where things click just more than offense. But um, obviously these, you know, adjusted offensive efficiency numbers, adjusted offensive or defensive efficiency numbers, you know, tell the story. But I I really do think a little bit was a missed evaluation defensively when it came to, you know, Brandon McKissick and Flanders Fleming, who were the, you know, all conference defenders, man. I mean, it's just one of those things and I might have to, ask Jim Root if I can screenshot a couple of our, you know, DM uh, conversations because I kind of pointed out, I'm like, again, I, I like Brandon McKissick. I'm really happy that like at the time I was, I was ecstatic that they were, that they got Brandon McKissick. I'd absolutely a take, but I was like, I don't think he's anywhere near the defender that, you know, his reputation from being a multiple time all league defender would suggest. And um, same with Flanders Fleming, who I will say Fleming actually, I think was a better defensive player than even I thought. But again, I just was just like, would have would have fooled me that you know he was an all conference defensive player, right? Um, right, and uh, of course not having Felder certainly hurt. Um, you can look at a couple <laughs> other things, but I do think there was a couple missed evaluations there. Um, but hey, you know you look at Florida thirty seventh in offense. Imagine if Brandon McKissick was even a league average three point shooter um, versus what he was. You know you could see some of those things there. But you know overall overall like the thing I wanted to kind of mention like in terms of why I thought that the Gators struggled defensively over the last three years like. We, we we know that Mike White is not a great offensive coach, kind of something that is, you know, pretty, pretty widely held belief, I would say, with Florida fans. Like, to me, when it came to Florida's defense, like, I, I don't know if Mike White knew what he was guarding. Like, his offense lacked so much sophistication. Like, I'm watching Texas A&M and Oklahoma and Ole Miss and, like, some of these teams that, again, are not high talent, but I'm like, they're running stuff offensively that is 10 times as sophisticated as Florida's offense. So like, I don't, I was just actually genuinely was curious. Does, does Mike white, is he like, he doesn't understand offense at a high level. Does he even understand what the other team is running right now? And honestly, I think there's times that, that he didn't. And, and that's one of those things too, where it comes to like, even like, like college basketball right now is like the coaching I think is by far and away the best it has ever been in the history of the sport. Even looking back at games from eight or nine years ago in college basketball versus now, like it's, it's almost like you, you might as well be watching like black and white on ESPN classic. Like it looks like it's like a bygone era. Like the game has moved so fast and I just don't think that Mike White moved with it. And again, that's, you could even look at the dribble drive, which was like the preeminent offense of the 2010s that kind of 
you know, you know, 2000, 2010, like that kind of died out. That's kind of one indication. And, and, and again, that's just one of those things that like, you don't see too many like quote unquote defensive coaches anymore because all those guys are getting phased out because the offenses are too sophisticated. So um, again, I'm not just trying to bash on Mike white. It's just something that again, as you move forward in, in another hire, especially if it happens to be a mid-major hire, which, you know, very well could be, we don't have a you know great idea who it's going to be quite yet. But like, again, you've got to understand that like, if someone's hanging their hat on like one side of the floor, they, they have like that, like that, like someone who's, hangs their hat on one side of the floor in 2022 scares me significantly because I don't know how you can confidently understand both sides of the ball and then say like, Oh, I'm only a defensive coach or I'm only an offensive coach. Cause the game is just too sophisticated now. Like you, you, you have to be versatile. And um, I, I ultimately think it was Mike White's lack of offensive knowledge that ended up hurting him on the defensive end. I love that. That's why people listen to Florida basketball are there guys that kind of nuanced, uh, nuanced takes uh, that Eric Fawcett offers. So one guy's name that kept coming up when I was thinking about the Mike White era and kind of like my like bird's eye view of it was Shaka Smart. And I almost think they're inseparable because um, a lot of people want to to hire Shaka Smart. Um, we could include Chris Mack, but Chris Mack did not win as much as Mike White uh, when he took a power six job. Neither did Shaka Smart. Um, and so I wanted to point that out. Shaka couldn't win an NCAA tournament game at Texas um, and actually had a losing season, one terrible season at Texas where they went 11 and 22. Um, he did win the NIT championship one year uh, and was probably going to go to a fourth NCAA tournament in the COVID year. They were, they were on the right side of the bubble, but in any event, best finish was third. In the SEC, Florida's best was second under White. But um, Shaka, to me, has some of the problems that Eric was just talking about. And I, this is another reason I like doing this back and forth with Eric, because I was going to talk about Shaka, and now Eric brought up something that's really interesting to me. And, you know, so Shaka's identity was, I'm going to be sort of Billy Donovan's defensive coordinator a little bit. We're going to press. We're going to make things frenetic. Uh, and we're going to recruit guys that can fit that style, right? And that was kind of what the identity was. At Texas, what was his big problem? One was that style of play didn't work in the best basketball league in the country, um, even though it had worked wonders with Anthony Grant's talent at VCU, right? Grant signs, famously signs a top 20 recruiting class at VCU, which nobody thought was possible, and that top 20 recruiting class ultimately goes to the Final Four, right? And they go to the final four under Shaka Smart out of the first four. And the reason you could do it in the NCAA tournament was, at least in my opinion, Eric, is because it's a lot harder to prepare for that style overnight, right? So when VCU wins a game in the first round, their second round opponent, now credit them for winning those games, but then their second round opponent has one sleep to get ready to play that style. That's really hard. Um, and it's one reason Rick Pitino won a lot of NCAA tournament games everywhere he was, uh, is it's difficult to do. Think of like the triple option in football, right? Like it's easy. If you practice it all the time, you know, that's great. But one of the reasons it's a challenge to play like Georgia Tech at their height of their, or Nebraska when they were a national power was because you don't ever play that style. 
So that was kind of the deal with Shaka, but it didn't translate at the Big 12 level. Shaka never adjusted. He goes back to Marquette. Granted, still a power six league, but working a little bit better there. They're in the NCAA tournament this season uh, because there's not that sort of athleticism deficit. Long-winded explanation of saying, like, it seems like that can be a common problem for mid-major coaches, even ones that are highly coveted, like Shaka Smart was and Mike White. Well, it's, it's actually funny too, because I know like Mark, even talking about like, I, I know this even wasn't the comparison you were making to like specifically to this season. Um, but, you know, if everyone will remember Marquette started the season, you know, really hot and everyone's just like, wow, Marquette's really like turned it around quick. Like, oh, this Shaka Smart guy's a lot better than we thought. Um, and then, you know, they quickly lose like four games in a row and luckily they're in the NCAA tournament, which is great for them. But um nowhere near kind of the beginning of the season. And it was like one of those things where like, is because they like beat West Virginia who like they found out actually isn't very good. Um, much like when the Gators beat FSU and we were all, you know, ecstatic about that and then found out that they actually weren't good. And then um, much like the Gators were able to play Ohio state and get a win when their guards were not healthy and Malachi Branham wasn't quite Malachi Branham yet they also beat Illinois when Illinois was playing without Kofi Coburn so it's actually even funny if you want to even take the comparison further uh, Marquette season was a lot like Florida where it like started off like oh both these teams are actually really good oh these coaches are a lot better than we first thought and then it's like okay it's actually like a little bit of these opponents they ended up beating maybe weren't actually quite as good as 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 we thought uh, and again like my my one other thing regarding um you know regarding uh the final four run what they did at vcu like again i'll just say like like i'm not trying to like disparage like all basketball that took place before a couple of years ago but like i don't see that style of play taking a team on a run in 2022 or uh, year 2022 like uh, would it have happened in whenever that final four was 2012 2013 like obviously obviously it did but again i just think like the, the sophistication is, is so different. I just like, I, I just don't see that happening. And I think, again, you're just seeing so much quality coaching around the country right now that um, you can't really, it just doesn't seem like those kind of high variant styles of play kind of really work out. But um, I, I, I think your comparison that you've made, you know, for a while now, the Shaka smart to Mike white comparison that only seems to be ringing more and more true. Um, that's one of your better ones, Neil, that that's really worked out. So um, I think it's com comparable. And uh, I, I guess maybe, uh, just like Marquette was happy to to get Shaka Smart, and that seems to be a good fit for both of them. Um, that could be very well Mike White in Georgia. Yeah, I mean, look, Shaka's, uh, you know, his whole idea was this havoc defense. It's what Billy Donovan I mean, didn't have defensive coordinators all the time at Florida, but when he had Larry Shiat and Shaka Smart, he did. And it worked out okay. Um, and that was kind of what, what Billy delegated. Um Shaka has never really progressed as an offensive head coach. I mean, even this season, they're, I mean, I don't think that they're particularly good offensively. I didn't look at their efficiency numbers, but they are a better defensive team than they are an offensive team, which was always the deal with him at Texas. A little bit like Mike, he obviously had the bad luck um, with uh, the young man that had cancer um, the one season, a yeah, season and a half, I guess. That would have been. Uh, you know, maybe things go a little bit differently. He probably wins an NCAA tournament game at least uh, with that young man on the floor. But um, in, in any event, it's, you know, it is, it's kind of, does that translate? And to, to Eric's point, you know, yeah, I mean, these modern, these it's, it's high variance basketball that can create, that can win these NCAA, make these NCAA tournament runs. 
but that's not necessarily modern basketball, right? Like think of the teams that have come from the first four to the final four. They're VCU, George Mason, and Syracuse. The only one that played normally was George Mason. Uh, and I say normally um, because they did have like front court players and back court players. And, you know, they did switch defenses and they ran normal offense as Jim Laranega, right? But Syracuse played a 2-3 zone uh, that they were just really good defensively that year. And that zone, again, one sleep to prepare for the 2-3 against somebody that does it all year. Uh, and they happened to shoot the ball well in that tournament, which they hadn't done all season, right? There, Final Four. Um, and then VCU with that Havoc defense that they weren't ready to play. So I think, yeah, I mean, that's a great uh, way to finish that comparison that Eric made. Marquette very happy with Shaka. Um, I think George is going to be very happy with Mike White, who at a minimum, uh, I mean, the guy's never had a losing season. That will be put to the test next year. I don't know how he avoids one in year one there, but – um, you know, Mike's again, Mike's floor is pretty high. So, uh, that probably, it is a little bit like if I'm a Georgia fan, I'm wondering if it's a little bit of a defeatist hire to Eric's point. Um, but also it is a stabilizing hire, I think, because the bottom had fallen out of Georgia basketball. Um, and Mike will certainly restore some of that uh, pride back to the equation. Now the Gators, um, on their end, get their chance for a fresh start too. So to Tracy's point now, nobody has to follow Billy Donovan, um, which is great. They're going to be following a guy who kind of got run out of Florida. Um, you know, I did talk to two coaches, Rick Stansberry, uh, Rick Patino, nice enough to, to get into my chats and have a little chat and, um, their thoughts on a couple of SEC coaches of the year, Eric, their thoughts on the Florida job. And Rick Pacino, of course, famously told his, his protege, Billy Donovan, not to take it, that it was a dead end. Rick now thinks that it is by some distance the third best job in the SEC uh, behind Arkansas and Kentucky. Your, your kind of thoughts on that. Wow, Neil, just uh, big time stuff from you pulling pulling those names. Uh, but I, I like, I'd have to say, like, again, it's, it's, seems to be a little bit of a still a debate of like how good of a of a job you know is is Florida and maybe that gets tested a, a little bit um again I don't know if I totally believe that it's third by a large margin just because like like again I'll, I'll just point out a couple of things that I've kind of been, you know, hearing, thinking about for a while, didn't bring up. We've kind of hinted at it on the show a little bit. You know, one of the things we pointed out was that Florida's assistant coach pool salary pool is low. Um, we've talked about that, especially when referencing that Eric Pastrana had to take a pay cut from Oklahoma State to come to Florida. Something that I don't think that anyone really thinks is a sentence that should ever have to be said. Someone taking a pay cut to go from Oklahoma State to Florida. Um the practice facility is is dated, and I know um, that was something that, you know, talking to some former members of the the, the program um, that are now gone, like that's a frustration. They kind of were telling me is just like they they thought that um, you know the practice facility was not on par with a lot of the other stuff in the SEC, um, much less the other you know high major ranks. Um, also, you know, like living arrangements for the players. Um, that's something else that I think are not at a high level and was a frustration of some of the coaches. Um, which again, we'll see now that the Billy Napier effect has come in, those football players are getting nicer places to say maybe basketball comes. Um, and then, I mean, you can add in like, you know, like, like again, like, I don't know 
exactly like I, I you know, Florida fan support the, is, is we, we can kind of argue like how, how toxic are they really, you know, what's the, how, how much do they, you know, come out to games, you know, especially some of these non-conference, you know, mid-major opponents in, in the fall, we can argue that. So there's some things like that, that I don't think make Florida as clearly a top three job as it once was. But I will say, I do think it's like, it's, it's, it's still there, but I don't think the margin is, is, is maybe as wide. Yeah, that was Stansbury's take. Was a little more in line with Eric than Patino. Stansbury said it's certainly a top four job. He didn't know if it was better than Tennessee anymore um, because Tennessee obviously fills the arena on weeknights. um, And they have kind of apartment style living, some of the nicest dorms in college basketball uh, for their players. Florida players are kind of a mixed bag on the facility. Some of them said it was fabulous, like Pat Young. Um, others, to Eric's point, were like it just seemed kind of average when they went to other places. Um, when they opened it for Billy in 2007, it was, or 2008, it was state of the art. Um, and now it's 14 years old. That's what happens. Uh, so, you know, it needs, it needs a coat of paint, that's for sure. Uh, and so I think there, there is some there. One thing I'll say about Florida is that the recruiting base is almost second to none in the sec. Um, just because you have, in addition to Florida being a good basketball hotspot, you're four hours from Atlanta and Gainesville. Uh, so you can go there very easily and get talent. The Gators have always recruited Georgia. Well, see Kowasi Reeves, um, is the latest player, uh, from that area. And then there's the prep schools. Florida has longstanding ties with Montverde. Obviously, they've cleaned up. That's probably, uh, if it's not the best prep school for basketball in the country, it's one of the best three. IMG um, is new and still up and coming, but there's others. Florida Air Academy, uh, various schools that Florida has always recruited pretty well at. Um, So, just so much talent ends up coming to this state and Florida has done well with those places. Uh, so that's kind of a big part of it. I mean, when Billy Donovan built the program, he built it basically with talent from Miami and, uh, you know, South Florida pretty much. And a good, you know, whoever the best guy from Jacksonville was, they would sign. Um, so, you know, you can do it that way. Florida state, same deal. Leonard Hamilton built the program signing in-state talent. Um, And I think that's a huge advantage for Florida. Um, I think the fan base thing, I hate to say this. I don't want to knock like, I'm not going to get into the toxicity debate, but what I will say is I think fan passion outside of like Arkansas and Kentucky is a little bit of an overrated like metric. Like if you're winning, everyone in the SEC comes, right? These arenas are great. Um, Florida, I used to think was the best home court advantage when it was full. Uh, now I think it's probably third or, or fourth when full. Um, certainly not as good an arena as Bud Walton when full. Certainly not Auburn when full. Um, so I think those two. Also, another one that's really underrated is the Pavilion at Ole Miss. Now Kermit hasn't been able to fill it up like Andy Kennedy did, uh, but that place rocks when it's full, and the students are right on top of you. So, I mean, the point is all these places can get loud. When you're winning, SEC fans come because they're passionate. Uh, so wins sort of cure a lot of that, Eric. Um, 
I did want to get one last point on, on a white that I totally forgot. And since we're kind of doing the white postmortem, um, you know, Eric was talking about the sophistication of the offense. And I do remember that, you know, a friend of mine that was on the Kentucky staff and ended up leaving was saying Florida's one of the easier scouts uh, to Eric's point, just not that hard to prepare for. Um, and it really shouldn't have been like that after Chris Chioza left, right? Like when you have Andrew Nimhard, you really ought to be able to do pretty sophisticated stuff offensively. And look at, I'm not going to say look at Gonzaga because of Andrew Nimhard, but like with Andrew Nimhard on the floor, Gonzaga famously loves a lot of horn sets. They do a bunch of modern stuff. Um, I'm sure Eric could have a field day with it at some point this summer, just breaking down all the different intricacies of what Mark Few does offensively. But the old style thinking was with horns, you needed kind of two bigs, a traditional four and a center, and they come out and that's the horns to the set. Gonzaga doesn't even do that, Eric. They have like Julian Strother out there and like Drew Timmy, like you don't have to be big anymore. And when your point guard is six, five and physical, like Andrew Nimhart, it doesn't really matter as long as he has a head of steam and can pass. Um, and I never understood why Mike White never incorporated any of that stuff into these offenses or asked Andrew Nimhard to extrapolate on these Princeton concepts because of two reasons. One, Andrew is so cerebral that he could have done that as a freshman or sophomore. And two, he played for Kevin Boyle and Montverde like runs a college offense. So I wanted to get that in. Yeah, well, I mean, he also then came off, you know, for the second season, came off a summer with, you know, Nick Nurse um, with Canada's national team and was playing, you know, significant minutes right, when they right, were taking right. on Team USA. So I'll also say, you know, one of the, you know, considered to be the brightest minds in NBA coaching, Nick Nurse seemed to get along well with Andrew Nemhart. So, uh, again, that, that, that that's when I just still will always think of, like, how fun it would have been to, like, have had an offense to, like, fully realize Andrew Nemhart. Um and again, it's it's also funny you mentioned the horns thing because it's almost like like the days of like when teams went to two three zone and teams always put their center in the middle of it and was always like oh you got to get the ball to the middle of the zone to this like six foot nine guy with bad hands and no passing instincts and then like I don't know who's the first to realize it's like hey it's actually stupid to just like feel like you need to put your center in that position put your best you know playmaker in that position so um, definitely a little bit of modernization there um, but uh, yeah that's. Um, De definitely just another another indication of like like you were you were even talking before about like the how you know mike white went trying to trying to press and it didn't work out at first and it was just like well like you know did you recruit to it it's like well no and then it was like you know also the dribble drive um and talking about you know how easy florida was to prepare for from other staff he hearing other staffs in the sec saying that it's like okay it's dribble drive so they're going to pass and they're going to cut and they're going to try to attack a closeout and it's like it's almost one of those things. It's like, well, it becomes a very easy scout when you just know that that player is not going to be able to get an advantage with the triple drive. Um, so again, for Florida to roll out Andrew Nemhart, Noah Locke backcourt and say like, okay, like big burden on you two to create one-on-one -on -one advantages with the dribble drive. Um, I'll just never understand why that was. No. Why he could like how you could in, in any way reasonably think that that was was going to work um but again it's just one of those things where it's like well if you're not knowledgeable enough with any other style of offense and that's all you know because that's all they ran at louisiana tech for four years 
yeah, you know, and that's one of the things too. Like if I was able to talk to Scott Strickland, that's something I would just tell him is like, you've got to understand what style of basketball works. And it doesn't mean you have to hire someone who plays that, you know, one of the styles that has worked in modern basketball at the highest level. But if you're taking a mid-major guy who relies on a style of play that is not going to work at the high major level, and we know it from history and looking at what's happening right now, um, there, there has to be a plan in place um, for what that coach wants to do. And again, for White to come in his opening press conference and say like, hey, we're going to press, we're going to play dribble drive, um, and then also brag about never taking a shot clock violation. Um, well, it's, you know, it just was one of those things that like we probably should have seen. You know what? At the time it was like, well, I don't really think this is going to work, but I love the enthusiasm. We'll see what happens. And uh, I guess at the time we should have known it was like not a red flag, but, uh, you know, yellowish flag. And uh, that's just something I'm, I'm if Florida goes the mid-major out, um, that's something that's going to be uh, very much on my mind. So here's what we're going to do on the coaching search. And this might drive people that listen to 54 minutes of this show crazy. We're going to do a whole pod on the coaching search. Um, And that's because we should talk about some of these candidates uh, at length. And if we start doing that at 5421, this is a two hour podcast or hour and 40. Uh, I want to talk about Iona. Well, and, and Neil, if uh, some of these candidates are currently playing in the NCAA tournament, so if we wait until next week, we'll also have a little bit of NCAA tournament sample size for a couple of years. I, How about that for you, the listeners? Yeah, I love that. I love that. And we'll also, like, we could get into some of them if we break down the Iona game later this week, which I think uh, we we should do since we didn't break down Senior Day against Kentucky um, or the Texas A&M game. Two losses – uh, the highlights, the Keontae Johnson moment against right. Kentucky, of course, uh, really the highlight of the whole thing. And then Koisi Reeves and Niles Lane going nuts against Texas A&M and leading a huge comeback that, of course, fell short because Mike White was snake bitten by bad luck to the end. And Niles Lane got a cramp like a minute before overtime. Um you know, and, 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 you know, I do think bad luck is like more pronounced when you don't have a margin for air. Right. And so I would point that out about some of Mike White's bad luck, but I will say that I do kind of wonder if like John Ekbunu hadn't gotten hurt. Um, if Mike White, I think he does get to the final four that second year with Ekbunu. And then I kind of wonder if like we're even having this conversation now, um, because he's got a final four on his resume and people are a little more patient. Um, but, you know, it's amazing what one game uh, will do. Um, you know, Oral Roberts too, really, like if he's in the Sweet 16 last year after Keontae collapses, are we having this discussion right now? Maybe not, right? A couple different games in the Mike White era where the margin between a win and a loss was was so small, Eric. So I, I truly believe that Florida would have made the final four with Thigbunu. Like it's just like crazy to think like the drop off to like young Gorjak Gak, Kavarius Hayes at that point um was like significant. Like so I I and for them to play South Carolina that close, a team that like where the matchup at center was so important. Um yeah, I, I truly believe that they would have made a final four. I don't think that that would have again changed the trajectory of things. Like, does Florida get any different recruits? 
than if they get a final four? Like, I don't really think so. Right. Versus an elite eight. Do, does it change their style of play? No, it probably reinforces that Mike White wants to continue to do that. But then suddenly he doesn't have um, that super talented group that he inherited um, that was going to make any any kind of style of, of basketball work. So I don't think that that would have really changed the trajectory. And I don't think it would have changed anyone's opinion in 2022 because that just still would have felt such a long ways away. And, you know, the Oral Roberts one is an interesting one. Like, let's say Florida wins that game and let's say they lose in the Sweet 16 in, like, non-embarrassing fashion. Um, I, I, I would be interested um, exactly how much that would change people's perception. Um, I, I guess I guess you'll never know. But uh, I, I, I think that those are, you know, when I look back at, um, you know, the bigger kind of hinge points, I would have said, like, yes, I would have loved that Final Four for the program and, and for White. I, I don't know if I, I particularly think it, it kind of changes things. But, uh, Neil, would you like to take a victory lap um, or say something poetic about the fact that um, in the final game of the season for the Gators, or final, you know, before the NIT, I should say, um, the two players that have their best games of their careers and the two best Gators on the floor are Kwesi Reeves and Niles Lane, who are two players that we had been advocating for for more minutes for all season long. Would you like to take a victory lap? And I, I'll give you the opportunity because I say that we were hoping for more minutes for, but I'm 100% piggybacking on the fact that you were on Niles <laughs> Lane way before I was. Um, so yeah, any, any, any comment on that? Well, you know, what I'll say is I think, um, so the number that sticks out to me, and this gets back to roster construction and sort of roster management, which is a critique of white. We didn't really even get into uh, all that much um, is that Florida was, was five and eight in games when Niles Lane didn't play this year. And that Niles Lane had 13 DNPs when he was capable of going for 16 points, nine rebounds, uh, three steals and a block in the SEC tournament against a team that was as hot as anyone in the conference. Uh, that's not a really great look um, for, for white. Uh, the other thing that Lane had that we saw late in the season was just stupendous athleticism attacking closeouts. Um, and so I did almost fall out of my chair when he hit the three pointer. Um, I will say that. <laughs> and I told his mother that, um, so I'm not just uh, playing to the to the lane haters when I say that. I told his mom that too. But, um, you know, I think he's got, like, I've made the Casey Prather comparison a lot. Uh, Casey Prather's breakout game came as a sophomore against Virginia, um, who we'll talk about a lot in the coming days, um, hint, hint. But, um, it, you know, same deal here for Lane. I just think the fact that he did it sick is – is great, but it was wonderful to see. I think he should have played more. I think he's Florida's best defensive player. That includes Colin Castleton, by the way. Um, and, you know, I don't understand why a guy who was supposed to be priding his culture on defense was keeping his best defensive player off the floor for so long. So that's a criticism of White that that stings a little bit. Um, and then the other one is Eric, uh, you know, Eric had mentioned – that Florida's best real bucket creator outside of Tyree Appleby was going to be Kowasi Reeves. For one, his jump shot is is like NBA unblockable because he's long and six foot seven, so it's very difficult to block that jump shot. Uh, it's also easier for him to get. He doesn't need as much space because he can see over people. Um, and then his form is really good, right? Like it's a little bit surprising that he didn't shoot an even higher percentage. 
as an AAU player, um, the way as pretty as it is. And uh, yeah, I mean, just a monster game. Why don't you talk a little bit about Wacy? Well, it's kind of like, again, I, I love that. Like I said, this exact thing on the Gator Country forums, and then Mike White said the exact same thing in his postgame presser, that it was a micro, perfect microcosm of the entire season. And I think that while me and Mike White both said the same thing, I think we probably have different interpretations of what it was a microcosm of. I think he probably thought it was more like <laughs> the, the tough luck and breaks versus like, to me, the ultimate microcosm was like the last play of the game where Texas A&M wins on a three and it's because of Florida's pick and roll defense that requires low man to tag the help on the roller because of their low hedge. So Kowasi Reeves has to tag a guy in the paint and then have a very, yeah. very long closeout to, to close out to a shooter. And he played it. And I know Kowasi was just killing himself because in his mind, he gave up the game winning season ending three. Um, it was an incredible closeout, but he was put in a very bad position so good. Because, because of Florida's pick and roll defense. It requires a very, you know, a very deep tag followed by a very long closeout. And it's the same thing that's cooked the Gators for three years. So to me, that was what I was thinking was a microcosm of the season, among other things. Of course, the other microcosm is you're talking about Kwesi Reef shot making. Look at the two, three, look at the two threes he makes to save the game for the Gators and push it to overtime. One was exactly like you said, just his height and his ability to see over, um, you know, the, the, the three that really tied the game. And then before his kind of shot making ability and the ability to create off movement, um, the three that ended up being a, a four point play. Um, so even those two plays showed the ability of Kwesi Reeves that I still feel was, um, not totally utilized. So, um, lots of things that was like, this is a microcosm of the whole season. Um, to me, a lot of them are, were related to Kwesi Reeves um, from his shot making that wasn't even totally realized and totally put in a position to get fully actualized. And also the fact that he was unfortunately the guy who has to live with giving up a three because in Florida's pick and roll defense that I've had a problem with, um, it forces him to tag deep in the paint and then have a very long closeout and uh, long closeouts are death in basketball. Um, and that's why we talk about closeouts so much uh, on the show. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, all these things are, are good points. Um, so, you know, that was, uh, I don't know, that, those were kind of just my bird's eye view thoughts of, of those two games. Um, you know, obviously for the Gators, they end any chance of going to the NCAA tournament by losing their last two. I think either one of those games, certainly if they beat Texas A&M, they're just in a position where, they probably have to beat Auburn to get in. I'm sure the committee had them pretty close to the field, uh, the way that it ended up getting seated, based on some of the teams that got in that just had a couple signature wins. Um, for example, Notre Dame had a worse quad one record than Florida, got into the field. Um, Marquette got a nine seed, and I think basically the reason was they, they beat Villanova twice. Um, like, like Eric said, they had the same number of quad one ones as Florida, by the way. Uh, so, you know, go figure. I think the Gators were probably pretty close if they, and if they had beaten Auburn, that might've mattered. Whereas a lot of these conference tournaments didn't, uh, but two wins over a team that they were going to seed second, uh, the committee was going to give a two seed to, uh, probably get the Gators in. Um, but they don't get in. They'll play Iona and Rick Pitino tomorrow night. In at Zach Tech Arena in the first round of the NIT, the Gales do Rick Patino things. They press, they play fast. I think they're 60, 
before they played the Metro Atlantic Athletic Conference Tournament, I don't have Ken Pon up. Before the Metro Atlantic Athletic Conference Tournament, the MAC Tournament, they were 65th in tempo. Um, now Ryder plays like slower than anyone in that conference, so maybe their tempo number dropped. But they still play pretty fast. It's it's going to be an interesting game for Florida because if Tyree Appleby is not healthy or he doesn't care, uh, things could get kind of ugly or sideways. I I feel. Um, Eric. So, so first of all, I, I'm really not trying to add anything more to the Mike White conversation. I will just say it relative to this game and not say anything more about it. These players um, had no idea that Mike White was looking at other jobs, had no idea Mike White was leaving, um, had voted to play in the NIT before they knew that Mike White was gone and were shocked to hear that Mike White was not going to be there. So I say that just to say, like, like you said, Neil, about like, well, we'll see if, you know, Tyree Appleby cares. We'll see if these players care. I am. I really do question that because a lot of them were very shocked by what transpired. Um, you know, Tyree Appleby injury. Let's talk like, well, we'll call on Castleton even play. Like I would, I wouldn't be shocked at all. If he's trying to play in the NBA you know, in, in a few months here, he's got a shoulder injury that he's been playing. Like that would be a devastating, like if he were to re-injure it, that would be devastating for him. Um, we know CJ Felder couldn't play in the SEC tournament. We know Anthony DeRuji was hobbled. Um, we know Myron Jones has a broken hand. He's probably trying to look at maybe playing pro next year. And he would love, he need he needs that hand to be 100% healthy. So I like as, as to who will even be playing, um, I kind of inquired a little bit and found nothing so i guess we'll see but it just wouldn't shock me at all if any of those guys did not play um because of injury and if they did you know like the motivation like questioning the motivation um that is 100 fair to do i i just I, I think in the best of times it can it's kind of fair to judge or, or to have questions about the motivation of players um much less with um a coach who kind of surprised all his players um by by leaving um We'll see what happens, but uh, uh, you know, Iona. Um, I I do think, like again, Rick Pitino. I I truly think he is one of the greatest college basketball coaches um, ever. Um, probably one of the best basketball coaches ever. Um, he is one of those guys that I really think when you, if you were to line up, like, hey, you've got five guys, and you know, he's got five guys, and if those guys are equal talent, he's going to beat you, you know, more times yep. than not. I think he is excellent. Um, so the fact that he takes Iona right away makes them an NCAA tournament team. Um, and this year, I mean, there was a time where, you know, halfway through the season, they were an at-large consideration. They were ahead of the Gators in the net for a little while and then kind of around the Gators in the net for a little while. Um, so, of course, you know, in that league, if you lose it all, you're going to drop from that quickly. But there was a time where he had Iona as an as, as a team getting at-large consideration. Um, if that tells you anything about his kind of ability as a coach, you know, he's got some high major transfers. He's got some Juco transfers. So was able to, to get pretty good right away. Um, but he has a, you know, they, they are very fun to watch. Like objectively as a basketball fan, watching Iona play is beautiful. Um, the way that they move the ball, they, they're not super pick and roll reliant. There are a lot of ball movement, a lot of player movement, um, a lot of multiple players cutting at once. It is, it is basketball symphony. So um, truly, I actually think this like, assuming the Gators play with some motivation, um, it's going to be a very entertaining game um, because like, yes, the Gators are more talented, but man, Iona plays beautiful basketball. And, um, you know, earlier in the season, Iona did beat Alabama showing that they, uh, you know, can beat an SEC team. 
Yeah, they had some funky losses down the stretch um, for sure. Lost to Manhattan, who's not who wasn't very good. Lost obviously they lost a rider in their conference tournament, which stunned everyone. Um, they should be motivated to play in the NIT. Most of these smaller school conference champions are very motivated to prove that like they belonged in the NCAA tournament. Uh, they, again, they they aren't going to be intimidated. They beat Alabama. Um, they were within seven points of Kansas at the under four media timeout. Um, so, you know, like they're not going to be too bothered. They have a wonderful front court player named Nelly Jr. Joseph, who's just like a beast. Uh, one of the nation's best shot blockers. I like literally better than Colin Castleton in terms of his shot blocking numbers. Um, and just a monster on the offensive glass. If those two things scare you, they should, because those are things that Florida is not great at negating. Um, so uh, I would look for him to have a really big game. I think Florida's uh, real advantages in this game come from guys like Niall Slane, Koisi Reeves, and yes, I actually think Tyree Appleby, if he's healthy um, and motivated, uh, will be a real problem. I don't think – and I night now, Iona's leading scorer is a 6'4 guard named Tyson Jolie, but I don't think um, that either him or Elijah Joyner have kind of the foot speed or lateral quickness to deal with the problem that Tyree Appleby can present. Um, so I do think that those are good matchups for Florida in the backcourt, which is not something we got to say a lot in SEC play, Eric. No, and I again, I'd say Iona is a much better offensive team than defensive team, and I think that's almost why, like, they press a ton, and I think a lot of that will be, uh, um, I think a lot of that kind of uh, is, that's why they press so much is because he kind of knows they don't have great defensive players, um, and they do want to play a little bit bigger, and that's kind of why, um, especially in that league, the, the fact that they do have um, so much size in the front court. The fact they have Nelly Jr. Joseph, they also have, um, they do have a seven footer named Osborne Shima who doesn't play a ton, but we've kind of seen, again, we saw all throughout the season, like teams that have like the seven footer that plays, uh, you know, 12 minutes a game ends up starting against the Gators because they want some kind of matchup against Colin Castleton. So maybe we see right. something like that. Um, but uh, yeah, the fact that they don't, uh, uh, don't have great defensive players. Yeah. And, and they are another, again, they, they're like pure man to man team, um, which again is like very, you know, Rick Pitino. Um, so they don't, you know, they don't really junk it up in the half court at all. Um, so I do think that. Like Florida, if that kind of keeps them from wanting to do that. Um, but, uh, you, you definitely know a little bit of what you're, uh, you know, kind of going to expect because like, you know, Rick Pitino always been that, uh, you know, man to man pack line defensive team. So you were saying that they play a lot of man-to-man um, and they don't junk it up in the half court. And then my internet went kaput for half a minute. 
<laughs> yeah, no problem. Just uh, yeah, that you know, Rick Pitino always been known for that that kind of pack pack line, man to man defense. It's something that they definitely brought to to Iona, and um, I could see against the Gators again, particularly when um, they don't have a lot of creators are on the perimeter um guys that are particularly electric i think and uh as again like a florida team that struggles to shoot i could see them definitely kind of just sitting back and uh trying to kind of make the gators try to shoot over top of them yeah no i think all, all that's probably pretty accurate like i'm gonna be honest i'd be surprised if florida won this game um given everything that's happened in the last few days then again um if there's anything we've learned about the florida basketball program in the last couple of years is that they're really, really resilient. Um, you know, maybe their coach leaving for Georgia on Sunday on selection Sunday doesn't bother them that much because, you know, Keontae Johnson almost died on the floor a year ago. So, you know, they've been through all this stuff before. Um, and Iona did not play great down the stretch to Eric's point, which is why, they ended up not getting at large consideration when to Eric's point, they were in the should be in category and the ESPN bubble watch for much of the year. Uh, and then kind of fell out of it when they lost games down the stretch. Then again, it's Rick Patino against Al Pinkins in his first game as a head coach, you know, Hey, baptism by fire, Al, good luck. Uh, so Gators, Iona, a late tip tomorrow night. But uh, should be a fun one. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, that's something that is is good to note. Al Pingens will be the acting head coach. We will see how that goes. Um, staring down the sidelines at someone who I think is one of the greatest coaches of all time um, to be determined. But again, like that's something that's 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 crazy. Is like like Iona won their league by three games. Like they won the regular season just like with ease. They coasted into the finish and then started to play um, a little bit poor or a little bit poorly. So. Um, yeah, that's, that's rough. I'll be, I'll be really interested again. Like a lot of these players, like on the Gators that really pride themselves on being competitors. It's like, well, you know, like this is the time where you really show if how much competition matters to you. I mean, it's almost like, you know, do we have to make a, this late on the podcast, a, a Dan Mullen comparison where he's like, Oh, I love, com you know, competition more than anything. I would, you know, we're, we're thumb wrestling. I'll kick your ass. But you know, if we play Oklahoma in a bowl game that, that, that doesn't count. I don't care about that. Um, again, that's one of those things where you can start to really think about what, like what is competitiveness and how much does competition really matter? Um, well, Hey, like with, you know, some of these players, like I, again, I don't know what the, like, you know, modern player and college basketball kinds of kind of things like, but like, again, you're playing against one of the greatest coaches in basketball history. I would think that would be something that should maybe matter to these players or at least some of them, if they think about it that way, um, I'll be really interested. Uh, but Neil, what is, uh, what is your expected attendance for a late 9 PM local tip um, on a weekday in, in Gainesville? What is, what, what is your expectation there? So I'm thinking rowdies is full and then a thousand other people. <laughs> that's, that's my guess. Wow. Um, just scattered around the arena. Um, but I will say this in terms of Tyree Appleby's motivation. Um, I'm hoping that it's high right now. I, I really hope Cleveland state holds on. They're ahead of Xavier right now, folks. So if Cleveland state beats Xavier, they would travel to Gainesville if the Gators win and play the Gators and it would be the Tyree Appleby Super Bowl. Um, so Cleveland state, Florida still possible. Um, but 
right now, yeah, Cleveland State has a five-point lead at Xavier at the under 12. So uh, there you go, folks. That's as we record here on Tuesday night. Enjoy March Madness. Um, you know, best time of year for college basketball fans. Eric and I will figure out a way to do an Iona uh, show. Um, we promise you that. But we hope you enjoy this rather long version of of uh, the the pod as the Mike White era is over at Florida after seven seasons. Um, go Gators. Keep attacking closeouts. <laughs>